Good evening. This evening we are in Ecclesiastes chapter 5. Ecclesiastes chapter 5, where we are going through this book rather quickly. Generally we're going to cover two chapters in one evening. So uh, it's probably a good thing too, because this book really is, as its theme, it's man's wisdom. And the theme of the conversations that the teacher or the preacher has, which is what Ecclesiastes means, the teacher or the preacher, are pretty dark at times because, you see, he's conversing, he's communicating what life is like apart from a relationship with God. Man's wisdom apart from God's wisdom, it's depressing. The best that man has to offer is depressing. Frustration. He says meaningless 37 times in this book. It's all about vanity or things that are, have no meaning. Because apart from God and a relationship with him, there is really nothing about this life that can be described as truly meaningful. And so he's going down a list. He started by saying everything is meaningless, and now he's going categorically, covering different topics. And this evening in chapter 5, this topic may surprise you, but he essentially says that religion is meaningless. Now let's understand, we're not talking about the religious experience that uh, James talks about when he says religion pure and undefiled is to minister to the needs of the widows and the orphans and to keep oneself unspotted from the world. We're not talking about a true religion. We're talking about a religion which is basically a bunch of rules. It's not really a true relationship with God. In fact, many times religion, unfortunately, takes the place of a relationship with God. People use religion in order to avoid having to have an intimate relationship with God. So in this book, in chapter 5, as we talk about the fact that religion is meaningless, we're then going to get into the fact that even wealth and having lots of money, meaningless. And finally, living for yourself is meaningless. And so those things we'll see bear out in the text. Let's open in a word of prayer. Lord, Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word, and we ask for the wisdom that only you can give us. We ask for the wisdom of your Holy Spirit, the gift of wisdom, and the truth of your word to be implanted in our hearts, that we might be able to, by faith, live our lives for you. And we pray that we would be encouraged in our faith, even through this rather dark book, that we would understand that that's what's out there. That's what life is apart from you. All the more reason for us to cultivate our relationship with you, to ground ourselves and root ourselves in Jesus Christ, that our relationship with you would carry us through the dark times, the difficult times, the tragic things that happen in our lives. Lord, we look to you this evening and pray that you'd open our hearts to your word. In Jesus' name, amen. Religion is meaningless. I found this to be true. I grew up in a religion, so to speak. I grew up a sort of religious person. I was an altar boy. I did a lot of religious things, and none of those things saved me. The good news is they introduced me to the truth. That's the good news, is that later when I was ready and desiring to have a relationship with God, the religion I had grown up with taught me enough to know where to go and what was true. Because I was involved in a religion that was true, but it still didn't save me. It still didn't change my life until I had a relationship with God. So religion, apart from a relationship with God, is really truly meaningless, and that's what we're talking about. Let's look at verses 1 through 3 in chapter 5. Guard your steps when you go to the house of God. Go near to listen 
rather than to offer the sacrifice of fools who do not know that they do wrong. Do not be quick with your mouth. Do not be hasty in your heart to utter anything before God. God is in heaven and you are on earth, so let your words be few. As a dream comes when there are many cares, so the speech of a fool when there are many words. And so the encouragement here is that a a devotion to God through pious and insincere sacrifices, which is how the Jews worshipped God, is only going to end in frustration. If that's the extent of your relationship with God, if if it's just as a Jew would offer sacrifices and follow the law, if that's all that you did, what what a meaningless experience that would be. See, worship should consist of active listening and not simply religious activity. I took a class when I was working in the corporate world called active listening. And you don't really think that, well, active listening, it almost seems as if listening should not be active. But it is. There's an active way to listen. And I think that's what we need to, really, when it comes to worship, we need to gravitate towards active listening. Not just speaking, not just working, not just doing, but hearing the word of God, meditating on the word of God, and then, quite frankly, listening for the voice of God. It's very difficult to know the voice of God in this dark world, isn't it? This you can be sure of. This is the one confidence we have in this world without confidence, is that this is God's word, and as we read it, this is God's truth, this is God's voice. But beyond that, you really have to cultivate a quiet heart, a stillness in your life. And then even then, you have to test and prove everything you think you hear against the word of God. And it's hard sometimes. We don't always know. We think God is leading us one way, but he's not. We think God is saying this, but he's not. And so that's why it's so important to actively listen. And that means hearing, but not just hearing, testing, proving, conferring with others, seeking God not just religious activity. So many people, their, their idea of religion is just we do, we do, we do. We feed the poor, we help the homeless, we, we do this, we serve at church, but their worship really isn't listening at all to the voice of God. You see, a heart of worship is one that shows reverence and respect for God's presence, not constantly talking. And I, one of my pet peeves, you may know this, you may not, is that... Worship, the time of worship, before we are in the Word, is reason enough to come to church. We have worship nights. Every time there's a fifth Wednesday, we just recently had one. And I have to tell you, as as much as I love being in God's Word, being in worship is just as important. And it's one of the reasons why I think it's important to be reminded that if you come to church on time, you get a full worship service. That is, you get all of the singing that is a part of crying out to God, but also that time of meditation, listening to, to God in that spirit of worship. And then you open up the word. It not only prepares your heart, in and of itself, worship is a wonderful experience, not to be uh, forgotten about, not to be forsaken. And so I would encourage you to remember that that's an important part of what we do here at Calvary Chapel. And it should be a part of our lives everywhere and at all times. Now, devotion to God through pious and insincere sacrifices isn't going to amount to much, but it's also true that a devotion to God through half-hearted vows, promises, if you will, empty promises, it's only going to lead to frustration. Look what we read in verses 4 through 7. 
The writer writes, when you make a vow to God, do not delay in fulfilling it. He has no pleasure in fools. Fulfill your vow. It is better not to vow than to make a vow and not fulfill it. Do not let your mouth lead you into sin. And do not protest to the temple messenger, oh, my vow was a mistake. Why should God be angry at what you say and destroy the work of your hands? Much dreaming and many words are meaningless. Therefore, stand in awe of God. This has to do with reverence in God's house. So he's making a distinction between religion and worship, true relationship. And there is a distinction. And many people just go ahead, they make their sacrifices, they serve, but they're not worshiping God. Or they make promises. And the vows were made, the vows were were acts of worship. So you'd say, I vow to make this sacrifice, I vow to give this much money, I, I vow to do this, I vow to do that. And it was an act of worship. And you were expected, if you made that voluntary vow, to fulfill that vow. It's, it's really easy to say, oh, I'll do it, and then not do it. But he's telling us, the writer's having us understand, keep the vows you make, or don't make any at all. In fact, Jesus talks a bit about this in the New Testament. Don't make vows. Vows, no good can come of vows, especially if you don't fulfill them. Don't say things that you don't mean, and don't make excuses for your words either. Jesus said, let your yes be yes and your no be no. Anything else really just brings about sin and difficulty in your life. So if you're going to do something, say yes. If you're going to do something, you're not going to do something, say no. Don't say, yeah, I'll do it, and then not do it, and especially in worship. God is not pleased with hypocrisy or with material sacrifice when it is offered insincerely. I often say to people, if you have any, any concern or reticence or a desire not to give or to serve, don't. Don't even think about giving a dollar or even a penny if that is not something that you're looking forward to giving. Don't even think about it. There's so much is made of giving today in the church, and it really makes me sick, to be honest with you. We come to the house of God that God may give to us, and he inspires his people to give and to serve, and we don't need to even mention that or make a big thing of that. Where you have a church where that's the emphasis, that only tells you one thing. That tells you that it's not a work of the Spirit. Because if if a man has to keep begging for money, then God isn't providing for the needs. I like the way Pastor Chuck Smith used to say, where God guides, he provides. I feel strongly about that. So all of that hypocrisy, material sacrifice, insincerity, it means nothing, so don't bother A true reverence for God doesn't encourage one to be insincere in worship. And when you beg for people for money and uh, they respond, uh, what you're getting is insincere worship. Uh, They've been manipulated into doing something or serving or doing something that their heart's not in. The worst possible thing you can do for a congregation is to, to promote that kind of thinking. I will never, ever find an excuse for in the house of God making that the issue. Never. And you've never seen it here at Calvary Chapel in 20 years, and you never will. Because that is a stumbling block for so many people. And and quite frankly, if you needed to be manipulated or motivated to give or to serve, what would be the point? We all should just go home, right? But it takes faith to believe that God will provide if you don't, you know, get involved. But God has always provided here at Calvary Chapel, I'm glad to say. Praise the Lord. So verses 8 through 9 begin in next section. We can see now religion, 
apart from God. Religion is meaningless, but wealth is meaningless too. And there's a lot of people who will say, well, it's not meaningless. I mean, it's great to be wealthy. Is it really though? How many wealthy people seem to be happy? Some are, some are not. I, I doubt that it's the wealth that makes them happy. I really don't think it's, it's the wealth that makes a person happy. Wealth is a good thing. It can be used properly for God's blessings. But, but you know, there are wealthy people that end their life. There are wealthy people, wealthy beyond what we could take all of our, all the money we've ever made in life, right? All of us, our entire life, pull it together and not scratch the surface of what some of these people have. And they're not happy. So what does that tell you? Look at verses 8 and 9. We are now in uh, the second part of chapter 5. If you see the poor oppressed in a district and the injustice and rights denied, do not be surprised at such things, for one official is eyed above a higher one, and over them both are others higher still. The increase from the land is taken by all, and the king himself profits from the fields. So we're talking about wealth And the point here is that so many times those with wealth exploit those without it. And many times exploitation makes life miserable for those in the world. And there's so much exploitation, corruption in this world, especially as it relates to wealth and money. Not just in the church, but also in the world. This man's observation of the exploited brought him to frustration and resignation. It made him feel very frustrated to see that what happens is that there are poor who are oppressed and they're just, there's no justice, their rights are denied, and the wealthy and powerful don't do anything about it. And if you, if you have wealth and power, that is what you should preoccupy yourself with. See, the lower classes are often taken advantage of by the higher classes. This could have been written today because it's still true. The higher classes usually exert great influence within the government. No surprise there. And the government is more likely to show preference for people of wealth, influence, and power. So nothing's changed. There's nothing new under the sun, as the writer says. He recognized that corruption starts at the highest levels of government. Clearly it does. Everyone within a governing system takes a portion of individual wealth through, through taxation. We all know that, right? How can the highest authorities be impartial and objective when they profit from the poor? They can't be. And so those who, quote-unquote, lead us, oftentimes exploit us. So the point is, wealth is meaningless because those with wealth don't do the right thing. Also, if you are the kind of person that devotes yourself to money, your life will only end in frustration and emptiness. Your life will be meaningless. Look at verses 10 through 11. Whoever loves money never has money enough. Whoever loves wealth is never satisfied with his income. This too is meaningless. As goods increase, so do those who consume them. And what benefit are they to the owner except to feast his eyes on them? That is the idea. You have more than you need. I often think about people with multiple houses and multiple cars. They can only drive one car at a time, right? They only live in one house at a time, you know? They have all these clothes and all these watches and all this jewelry, but they can only wear so much at a time. The point is you can have all these things way more than you need, and it doesn't bring you any happiness. It may seem that way. We have a world of advertising that would tell you, oh, my goodness, you're missing out. You don't have this. You, you don't drive this car. You, you don't live in, in, in the house of this many square feet. You, 
you don't own that. You don't have this, this diamond bracelet. My goodness, how do you get through the day? I mean, that's the way they present it, you know? Some of these jewelry commercials, they crack me up. Like, really, let's just stop a moment. Is there one person here that from five feet away can tell the difference between a real diamond and a fake one? There isn't. Even a jeweler needs a loop to to see the difference, right? And yet you'll pay, some will pay, thousands of dollars for something that looks exactly the same as something that's tens of dollars. You know, just think about that for a minute. There's really no way to rationalize it. That's just pretty foolish. Would you agree? It really is. Oh, yeah, but, but Pastor, it's an investment. An investment in what? <laughs> exactly. Yeah, you know, you really need to call it out. Wealth can never satisfy our deepest needs. It only increases our selfish desires, which increase our dissatisfaction. The more you have, the more dissatisfied you are with what you have. Accumulating material possessions only whets our appetite for more. It's like an addiction. It really is. It's like an addiction. You have, but you need more, you know. I mean, I have, I have one for you, a test of just the human heart. Those of you with children, ask your children this week, since you have so many toys, and I, I guarantee there's not one child in our church that, you know, doesn't have more than enough toys, right? But let's just say, you say to your kids, since you guys have so much, rather than receiving a gift this Christmas, I want you to pick out something uh, either from among their own toys to give away, or we can go shopping for a toy and you can give that to someone in need or whatever. Just look at their face. Watch their face when you make that suggestion. There may be one or two children here that are that good, but my, I generally think they would all be somewhat disappointed. They could have all the toys in the world, and believe me, they're going to be perfectly satisfied to get more on Christmas morning. I know, because I was a kid too, you know? As I've gotten older, I see through those things. I don't want more. I was looking at my uh, bookshelf today, and I have a bunch of books I've had forever, and I'm like, that's it. This year's the great purge. I'm going through everything I have. You hate to throw it out, but at the same time, nobody wants it. So what do you do? Do you wait till you die so your poor relatives have to come in and throw it out for you? I'm getting to a place where I'm like, the easiest way to get a bigger house is to get rid of half the stuff that's taken up the room in the house. So that's where my head is at these days. You know, I mean, I'm just being honest. I'm realizing I don't need all this stuff, you know. So that's this this year is the year of the great purge. I'm probably between the holidays. I'll spend a little time, get a garbage bag and just start throwing stuff out. So anyway, the more we have, the more people we find ourselves financially responsible for as well. You know, that is if you have a, a larger business, well, there's more people to pay. Uh, Very wealthy people during the time of the robber barons would have like a household of servants because in order to do what they did and live in the places they lived, they needed more people to take care of them. And so now, just like it says here uh, in verse 11, as goods increase, so do those who consume them. So you have a larger family, now you have more mouths to feed, especially if they're teenage boys. What benefit are they to the owner except to feast his eyes on them? And You're going to get to look at it, but you really can't enjoy it. And it really doesn't make you happy. This is a good message for like a couple weeks before Christmas, isn't it? Wealth can also actually rob us of a peaceful night's sleep. Look at verse 12. The sleep of a laborer is sweet, whether he eats little or much, but the abundance of a rich man permits him no sleep. It's so true, those with investments, right? They'll be up all night worrying about those investments. 
The laborer who doesn't have anything, all he's worried about is getting a good night's sleep so he can get up in the morning and work again. You know, the kind of people that don't sleep at night are the people that have a lot. They worry about losing it. The Bible tells us this over and over again. It's, we really should listen, right? Um, the Bible tells us that he gives his beloved sleep. We shouldn't worry about what we are going to eat or what we're going to drink. We shouldn't, those things shouldn't be our concern, but they do become our concern when we have many things. Wealth must be handled properly. There's nothing wrong with wealth, nothing at all, but it must be handled properly. I consider myself to be very wealthy, especially when I've been to other countries and I see the way most people live. I mean, we're all in the top 1% of the world's wealth. And you may not feel like that's true, but it is true. If you compare yourself to most people in the world, you're incredibly wealthy. And you may know people that are much wealthier than you, but it doesn't matter. You, you still have more than you need, most of us, I would imagine, do. So why aren't we happy? More isn't going to change that. We've got to get to the real source of our issues. So wealth must be handled properly in order to bring us blessing. Look at verses 13 through 15. I have seen a grievous evil under the sun, wealth hoarded to the harm of its owner, or wealth lost through some misfortune, so that when he has a son, there is nothing left for him. Naked a man comes from his mother's womb, and as he comes, so he departs. He takes nothing from his labor that he can carry, that, that he can carry in his hand. So he doesn't earn anything that he can take with him. That's the idea, right? Stop a moment and think about this with me. Hoarding our wealth prevents us from enjoying its blessings. What is hoarding? It's like storing things up for a rainy day, right? Now, there's nothing wrong with having some savings. You know, I know that no matter how great they made refrigerators 30 years ago, and they did, that my 30-year-old refrigerator isn't going to last forever. Actually, it's, I think it's 36 or something like that. It'll last, it'll last a long time. It's not going to last forever. So I have some money in the bank for when it happens because guess what? You don't have a lot of time to deal with when your refrigerator dies. All the food. You've got to get another refrigerator right away. That's just the way it goes. Okay? So there's nothing wrong with preparing for that eventuality. Now, if you happen to buy a brand new refrigerator, you should probably prepare right away because they last about five years anyway. Say, I'll stick with my 35-year-old refrigerator or whatever it is now. I've lost count. I think it was 86. So you still need to know that being responsible with your money is okay. But that's not hoarding your wealth. Hoarding your wealth is something different. And hoarding your wealth prevents you from enjoying its blessings. It causes us to suffer want. It's a bad thing. Losing our wealth causes us and our family to suffer the pain of loss. So you lose your wealth either through gambling or throwing it away or spending it on things you shouldn't or investing in things that are too risky, that's bad and so is hoarding it. We only have a limited amount of time to enjoy the opportunities that wealth brings. So enjoy the things that God blesses you with. I am not saying don't enjoy them. There are some people that, you know, they, they want to go on vacation, but because they hoard their wealth, they won't, you know, and they miss out and then they get to be too old to travel. Oh, I wish I could have traveled. Well, you could have. You just needed to not hoard your wealth, you know? So there's this balance, giving, sharing, using the money you have appropriately, investing, saving, all those things are important, preparing for the future when you can't work. How about someone who works in landscaping? You know, they're not working right now for the most part. Maybe if it snows, they plow. 
Somebody who works outside pretty much has to say, well, yeah, I'm not going to be working in January and February, right? So they have to save up and prepare so that they don't starve. You have to be careful and you have to also be prayerful about how you use your money. So there's this idea of having a responsible attitude towards wealth. Again, not hoarding it, not throwing it away, a balance. And the Bible gives us a lot of information on this, especially in the book of Proverbs. But wealth ultimately brings us nothing more than the opportunity to be blessed. But you've got to use that opportunity. You've got to take that opportunity. If you take all your money and you hide it, that's not using that opportunity. If you throw it away, that's not using that opportunity. Look what it says in verse 16. This too is a grievous evil. As a man comes, so he departs. And what does he gain? Since he toils for the wind all his days, he eats in darkness with great frustration, affliction, and anger. That's what your life will be if you don't use your wealth properly. That's the key, using it properly. Also, a devotion to God makes our wealth and our possessions very satisfying. It brings joy and contentment. I have never enjoyed my wealth as much as I have since I gave my life to Christ. All that God has blessed me with is a reason to praise him and thank him. And he provides for my needs. And I have the opportunity to bless others and to give and to share. And again, to enjoy the blessings that God has provided. I think there's, there's definitely a danger in throwing money away. But sadly, there's a danger in just hoarding it. And so many people do to their own detriment. And certainly the Bible does not suggest that that's a good way or a responsible way to manage your wealth. So what we learn in verse 18 is he writes, Then I realize that it is good and proper for a man to eat and drink and find satisfaction in his toilsome labor under the sun during the few days of life God has given him, for this is his lot. Moreover, when God gives any man wealth and possessions and enables him to enjoy them, to accept his lot and be happy in his work, this is a gift of God. So you see that? It's a gift of God to enjoy the blessings and the fruits of your labor. Notice in verse 20, he seldom reflects on the days of his life because God keeps him occupied with gladness of heart. That is, he doesn't sit around thinking how, oh, what was me? Oh, I won't, if only this, if only that... God fills his heart with gladness. He's not even thinking about his wealth. He's using it as the tool that it is. It's a blessing. It's not something we should be obsessed with. And yet, I don't need to tell you, in our nation, that is probably the number one priority in most people's hearts, their wealth. It is a tool. You know, when I'm doing a job, maybe outside, or I'm doing a, a job inside the house, you, you might need a strap wrench. You, you might need a tool. You might need something. And, and you go and you buy that tool because it's something you need to use. And you use it, but you don't spend all your time thinking about it. You just buy the tool and you use it. That's what money is. It's a means to an end. It's not the end itself. Having that attitude about wealth, oh, it will greatly bless your heart. And that's what God wants for us. Wealth has its proper place in our lives. It provides for our basic needs and our desires. And that's what it's there for. And wealth with joy, wisdom, and contentment is the result of God's blessing, not man's obsession. So, I'm going to give you a little challenge because of the time of year especially. In the next couple of weeks leading up to Christmas and even into the new year, 
Every time you think about money, not in a way like I, I take out a dollar or take out money to pay for something. Every time you think about money, that is, you start thinking about your investments or you start thinking about your bank account or you start thinking about this or that and it has to do with money, stop a moment, thank God for your many blessings and move on. Don't get caught in that obsession. You know, we have online banking now, so you can go online and you can look at your accounts and so many people do this, especially the investment accounts, right? We go in there and it's wise to go in there once in a while and look, but there's people that check it every day. And if that day the stock market goes down, they're depressed. And if it goes up, they're happy. And then it goes down, and it goes up, and it goes down. And, you know, I remember one point in my life I was watching my investments like that, and I finally said, look, I'm a long-term investor, right? I'm not day trading. Who cares? It's only on paper anyway. And money is paper after all. It just represents something else. So I hope that that encourages you, especially this time of year. Get your mind off of it. It's not worth your attention. It's not worth your devotion. Give that to God. Amen? Wow. A lot of encouragement here. The joy of serving the Lord satisfies us beyond anything that wealth can bring. I'm going to read something for you. In Matthew's Gospel, in chapter 6 and in verse 19, Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth, where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But store up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where moth and rust do not destroy and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. What an encouragement. See, I think the best place to be as it relates to money and wealth and riches is to have them and not let them own you. If you're fortunate enough to have money and you use it properly, you're in the best place you possibly can be. Now, sadly, not everybody has everything they need, and that's not a great place to be. And then there are those that have more than they need, and they're never happy. That's a horrible place to be. But if you're fortunate enough today... You know, you don't owe a lot of money. Your bills are paid. You can go out. You can afford to, to live and pay your bills. Boy, that is a good reason to thank God. Amen. You don't need more than that. If more comes in, it allows you to be more generous. And I just want to encourage you. That attitude will fill your heart with glad tidings of joy, right? We talk about joy this time of year. That's true joy. What, a, what an encouragement. But the truth is, wealth, apart from God, it's meaningless. It really is. Just like religion, apart from a relationship with God, is meaningless. Okay, finally, and this kind of follows up on those two things, living for yourself is also meaningless. And there's so many people today, whether they're wealthy or not, their whole life is all about them. I feel so badly for a person like that. Because I know what my life would be if I didn't have others in my life. If I didn't have wonderful relationships and family and people I care about, my life would be very dull. It would be very boring. It would be very empty. It would be meaningless. But if you have people like that in your life, friends and family, church family, people you care about, you know, the people you're involved in ministry with, boy, your life is full. You're a rich, a truly rich person for it, aren't you? And that's why some people, and it's so sad in our culture today, there's a whole generation of people who never go to a restaurant because they order out. They never go to church because they attend online, right? They, they never really go or do anything. They, they, they experience everything through like a seven or eight inch screen. And that's a big screen. A lot of them have got even smaller screens. I mean, I've told you this before. I see people, I live in a wonderful neighborhood. I'm so grateful that God blessed us with a small house in a wonderful neighborhood. 
But you know what's interesting is that so many people don't even look up. They're walking their dogs. What a wonderful opportunity. Get out, right? You're walking your dog. You get out of the house, and, and, and they're not even looking at the dog. They're not even looking at, them, at, at the round. They're looking at their phone. I mean, you think five, ten minutes, you could peel yourself away from that and enjoy what life has for you? It's so sad. We live in a horrible culture. It just kind of promotes this stuff. So living for yourself, look up once in a while, look around, and live for others. Of course, that's how we're encouraged to live by Jesus, and in that you will find fulfillment. So here we are in chapter 6, in verses 1 through 2. We're going to see that wasted opportunities make life miserable for many in this world. They squander the opportunities to have true meaning in their life. Verses 1 and 2. I have seen another evil under the sun, and it weighs heavenly on men. God gives a man wealth, possessions, and honor, so that he lacks nothing his heart desires, but God does not enable him to enjoy them. And a stranger enjoys them instead. This is meaningless, a grievous evil. See, this is an encouragement not to get caught up in these things, but it's also an encouragement to enjoy the blessings of God. You see, prosperity doesn't guarantee that you'll be able to enjoy the things you have. You may not think so, but you may not be given the opportunity to enjoy the things that you have. What do I mean by that? Well, having everything you want without your health is useless. There's so many people, they have so much, but they can't walk. Or they have some health condition. Or maybe in order to get all that wealth, they destroyed their life and their relationships. Having the means to be a blessing without being one is useless as well. I don't know. I really don't know how, when presented with an opportunity to be a blessing with someone, and you know you can and you have the means to do it, I don't know how you don't do it. Why wouldn't you make that investment? As a church, we make investments in ministries. As individuals, we make investments in ministries. And that brings so much joy because is it not true? The word teaches us it's more blessed to give than to receive. We talk about this time of year being a time of giving, right? Most of that means... To most people out there, I'm giving to myself. That's really what it means. You know, I was thinking because uh, my family, when we get together, we have like that white elephant thing. That's what we do. We don't exchange presents anymore. And that's a lot of fun. Like a $25 gift. Sometimes it's something very practical. Sometimes it's silly. But, you know, we go around, we play this game. And I look forward to it every year because it's a lot of fun. We laugh a lot. And it's, sometimes you end up with the worst gift. Sometimes you end up with something you can't believe you never owned. You needed it so much. But regardless of all of that, you know, Giving and blessing others, that, that's what really makes this time of year a, a blessing to us and to others. The idea that we're sharing of what we have and, and spending time with others, that's the most important thing. And you're only going to enjoy what you share now and regret what you hoard when you die. Right? You're only going to enjoy what you share now. What you hoard, what would be the point? You get to the end of your life. And you look around and all this you have, and you could have blessed so many people. Another little homework assignment. I highly recommend Patrick Stewart's uh, rendition of Ebenezer Scrooge. Any for that matter, but I happen to like, you know, Captain Picard. But uh, so anyway, I'm a Star Trek guy. But anyway, but I happen to like Patrick Stewart's uh, version of that. Very good. You can't, I mean, actually, you can't watch or read Dickens at all and not be transformed by the story. It's absolutely beautiful stories. Nicholas Nickleby, Oliver Twist. But specifically around this time of year, take the, take the time, watch. If you don't read it, at least watch, you know, The Christmas Carol. Watch that, 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 that 
that is really a, an opportunity for us to uh, learn what happens if you're this kind of person. Ebenezer Scrooge becomes a, uh, an example in a greater way than I can even describe tonight. But, you know, Christmas Carol, Charles Dickens, Ebenezer Scrooge's story, definitely something you want to, at least once a year, take the moment to watch and remember. So you're only going to enjoy what you share now and regret what you hoard when you die. And he is a literary example of that truth. Now, also, a large family and a long life don't guarantee that you'll enjoy prosperity either. Look at verses 3 through 6. A man may have a hundred children and live many years, yet no matter how long he lives, if he cannot enjoy his prosperity and does not receive proper burial, I say that a stillborn child is better off than he. It comes without meaning, it departs in darkness, and in darkness its name is shrouded. Though it never saw the sun or knew anything, it has more rest than does that man. Even if he lives a thousand years twice over but fails to enjoy his prosperity, do not all go to the same place. So kind of a graphic description there, a comparison. But did you see that what we're being told here is to enjoy our blessings, to enjoy our prosperity? I think we need to be reminded of that as well, not just, you know, well, save all your money. There's a truth to savings, but there's a truth to enjoying what you have. I always think the best possible way to live life would be to spend your money appropriately, invest it wisely, and then when you get to the end of your life, like you look at your checkbook and you have no money in it, and then you die. Wouldn't that be great? You used it all, you gave it all away, and that's it, I got no more. Don't leave any bills, don't leave any inheritance, you just go on your way to be with the Lord. Of course, that would be hard to pull off, but in either case, I think that would be the ideal. So how a man lives his life, defines his life, and how he is treated when he dies. See that idea of a proper burial? Uh, If you don't make an investment in others, there's not anyone going to be very interested in how you're buried. That's the point. Uh, The people attending your funeral will be those that you've touched during your life. And it's always a blessing to attend a memorial service that's well attended, right? You look around. And you see all these people who want to be there because that person touched their life, blessed them in so many ways. And you're not going to be there, but all those that you bless will be. Well, your body will be there, but your spirit won't. So what an opportunity we have to touch the lives of those around us while we draw breath. And of course, a stillborn child without the opportunity to give is better than a man with countless missed opportunities to give. That's the point of that graphic comparison. Now, a devotion to self-satisfaction will only end in frustration as well. There are people who go out there and you just want a satisfying experience. It's all about life and experience, and it's all about them and them being satisfied, right? They don't care about anybody else. It's all about me. Well, in verse 7, we read, All man's efforts are for his mouth. (laughs) That is to put food in it, right? Yet his appetite is never satisfied. What advantage has a wise man over a fool? What does a poor man gain by knowing how to conduct himself before others? Better what the eye sees than the roving of the appetite. This too is meaningless, a chasing after the wind. Basically, this poetically describes this truth, that living to satisfy your own needs, wants, and desires will leave you empty inside. You need to know that truth. If that's why you're alive, if that's your meaning of life, your purpose in life, you're going to end up very empty at the end of your life, maybe even before then. And so many people do. 
Wise and foolish, rich and poor men must guard themselves against selfishness. Again, great message for this time of year. You don't want to be a selfish person. The truly wise and rich man is the one that is satisfied with what he is given by God. So to be content and satisfied and enjoy what you have, that's the balance. To be giving, to share with others to the degree that you can, that's the balance. And that's what we all struggle to achieve and experience. Finally, a devotion to self-importance will also only end in frustration. As so many people think that they're the end-all, the be-all, it's, again, all about them. And, of course, living for yourself is meaningless. Look what it tells us in verses 10 through 11. We read, Whatever exists has already been named, and what man is has been known. No man can contend with one who is stronger than he. The more the words, the less the meaning. And how does that profit anyone? Essentially, this is the point. We are incredibly insignificant in the grand scheme of things. We really are. We're not insignificant to God, but in the grand scheme of life, we're pretty insignificant. We can't really discover anything new, right? We can't really do anything surprising or beyond comprehension. We can't really claim to be the ultimate authority and power on earth, the strongest one in the room, or the wisest or smartest one in the room. And we can't really speak about the things that we don't understand or begin to explain them. We, we really can't do a lot. So we're not here for those things. We're here to live our lives for God and for others. We'll, we'll get to that at the end of this book. But that's why we're here. And we're limited and incapable of understanding even our own lives. Look at verse 12. For who knows what is good for a man in life? During the few and meaningless days he passes through like a shadow. Who can tell him? What will happen under the sun after he is gone? Those are rhetorical questions. No one can tell you that. God could tell you, but no one else can. Man's wisdom is never going to give you that sense of satisfaction. We have no idea what is truly best for us. Amen? We don't know if it's better, worse, rich, poor, sick, health. We don't know what's best for us. God does. We have no way to predict the future, to calculate our own impact on it once we're gone. All we need to do is live for God. And as we live for Christ, as we live our lives, we know that he lived his life for us. He becomes the shining example of finding true meaning in life. He did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. So if you want to find true fulfillment in life, you need to live as Christ lived. Christ gave his life for others. He lived his life for others. He was not a wealthy man when he walked the earth, and yet he had everything he needed because his father gave him everything that he, he could possibly need. You, you see, I, I think as we consider the fact that we know this truth, it's an Easter truth, but it's a truth nonetheless, that Christ came and died on the cross for our sins and rose again on the third day, and he's coming again to judge the living and the dead. But that it started when he came as a baby, which we celebrate this time of year. When we recognize that truth, we recognize God made it all about us. And we need to make it all about him and about others if we're going to experience fulfillment in life. Let's pray. Lord, Heavenly Father, we thank you for reminding us of these truths at this most important time of year to remember them. We ask that you'd fill our hearts with a selfless nature 
show us and lead us and direct us to be giving and generous with others when, when you're calling us to and in the way that we can. And may we live our lives for the most important truths, which is to love you with our heart, mind, soul, and strength, and, of course, to love our neighbors as ourselves. May this wisdom stay in our hearts this time of year, and may we be filled with joy. May we be filled with gladness, contentment, and blessing all the days of our life. As we follow you, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Just one second.